Hello, my Liberty Kitty Cats, and welcome back to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. This is a special bonus Tuesday edition. As many of you may have noticed, I've been doing a lot more content while I'm uh, at home here in California on coronavirus lockdown. I've been doing a lot of live streams on Facebook, so make sure you follow the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. And what you're going to hear today is a live stream I conducted last week with uh, Matt Erickson from Wealth, Power, and Influence with Jason Stapleton. He has been on top of this coronavirus stuff since long before I heard anybody really sounding the alarm or really thinking this this was going to turn into something huge that really affected our lives. So I wanted to bring him on to talk about that. And also, we got into a lot about the libertarian response to this coronavirus and how libertarians should be looking at things going forward and marketing themselves and really turned into a great conversation. Before we get into it, I want to make sure you know about our efforts to help with Donor C's response to coronavirus. I just posted an update yesterday with Gret liar about two of the great projects we funded and all you really need to know right now is to check out donorc.com coronavirus to see all the great work they are doing helping people around the world particularly the third world who are affected by this virus and the shutdowns head back over just click one one tick back in your podcast feed to hear about those projects we were able to help finish funding and know that any of your support you toss to us on Patreon, 10% of that will go to help donor seize projects and their response to coronavirus over the coming months. So check that out at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Get some great content, help support your favorite libertarian podcasts, and you get to help some people in the poorest parts of the world at the same time. It's a win, win, win. Thank you so much for all your help and support. Enjoy today's show. I'm here live with Matt Erickson from Wealth Power and Influence with our friend Jason Stapleton. Matt, what's going on, man? Nice to nice to How's digitally meet you. We were talking before yeah, the show. It's is... funny that we're we're just meeting now over over this Zoom chat and live on Facebook. When uh, you've been out here in LA for a while already. <laughs> yeah, this is our very first conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big city though. You know, it's bigger than people think. It's not like we're it's not a small neighborhood here. Oftentimes trying to go meet up with people. I know Jason's had a couple of meetups that I just couldn't make it to because I I work a weird schedule. Well, I used to work a weird schedule. Now I work a weirder schedule where I don't have any schedule except my own. So that's the best kind of schedule. One of the many effects of the coronavirus. Yes. <laughs> I was just gonna say I moved down here from Seattle. And in uh-huh. Seattle, there's it's traffic is bad in Seattle. Like it's if you're trying to get somewhere, it's difficult um during rush hour. And it's genuinely bad. But here you have bad traffic and like ridiculously long distances. Right. So it's, you, you can't even, I know everyone gets tired of hearing people in LA talk about traffic, but it's genuinely, it probably should be one of the modern wonders of the world. Well, it's one of many problems that I think would work itself out much better in a much more free society. Maybe we can just talk about the traffic and maybe we can uh, talk about something besides coronavirus for a second. I mean, how do you think yeah. that, that we'd be looking at traffic and, and things like this in a world that where we did have, quote unquote, private roads, where we did have that libertarian society, uh, more or more libertarian society, perhaps of, of you know, less, less centralized ownership when there wasn't federal money going to the roads, where there wasn't state money going to the roads, where there wasn't city money going to the roads, because as we know, all this creates incentives that go in in weird directions that they things might not go where the market really allowed to take shape. Yep. It's uh, the, the centralized nature of the cities that we have is a product of the, the industrial era and the large, the large mega corporations and, and the huge industrial companies that were created through that time, which was kind of part of that was a natural evolution of technology, but we're, we kind of, we've hit a, a kind of a threshold and it's like, we're graduating, we're coming back down as companies are starting to get smaller and smaller and the big monstrous, uh, uh, like manufacturing warehouses and stuff like there's, you don't have as many of those anymore. So it doesn't really make sense to have everything as tightly centralized as it is now. I remember a, a guy, uh, and Antti Samaroff from the Scottish Liberty podcast. Yeah, he did a friend of the show. A, he's a good guy. He did a, a show a couple of years, probably five years ago now where he talked about how actually the, the nature of traffic and stuff that we have now, the way that the roads are set up is actually much worse for the environment because of the, um, the inefficiencies that it creates, the fact that uh, much more uh, travel could be done via rail and it would be much more efficiently sure. um, accomplished and it wouldn't be as, many, as much emissions and everything. So it's, we're, by, by centralizing everything, there's a lot of, of negative externalities that come from that. 
I mean, out here in LA in the 50s, and I'm, I'm doing this off the cuff. I don't know the exact specifics of the story, but uh, I think here in LA, there was a trolley system at one point. I just made up the 50s too. I don't even know what decade this was, <laughs> but it's, I swear it's a real story. Someone that wants to do it. research. Uh, yeah, there was a trolley system in place that got a lot of people around. It was popular, uh, but I guess there was like car lobbies that kind of went in and and kind of got, got that shut, shut down and of course pushed more people to the road. So, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways uh, that through the state and through the you know companies and lobbyists that use the state to craft things towards the way that helps them profit the most um, kind of just changes things to the point that it's it's hard for people even to envision society a different way. We kind of just take things for granted as they are, as if they've always been a certain way, uh, because for many of our lifetimes, they have been a certain way. For all my lifetimes, the roads have been done the way they've been done. Uh, but that, it really speaks to um, a lack of imagination in many ways. I mean, we can't, it's hard for many people to envision the world anything other than exactly the way it is. But uh, oftentimes there's wake-up calls, like right now, what we're seeing right now uh, with coronavirus and, and all the effects that are going on with that, things never really truly stay the same and th- things are always changing. So they're going to change one way or the other. We may as well be imaginative and come up with some good libertarian solutions to at least have some answers, even if people don't want to listen to them, at least have some answers to these problems when they arise. Yeah, I love I love the idea of libertarian solutions versus because I think libertarians tend to spend a lot of their time just talking about all the problems and they don't ha- bring a lot of good solutions to the table. I think like the 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 phrase that always comes to mind that's a little cheesy but it would be make libertarianism capitalist again let's get back to the to actually we we talk about how great the market is but i don't see very many libertarians that are actually involved in the market coming up with solutions and this has been kind of my my hobby horse lately is is trying to get libertarians away from spending so much time invested in politics right. um and the, the the coronavirus has really cemented all of that for me the response to it it revealed to me that, that libertarians have a very, generally speaking, have a very one-dimensional worldview. Um, and I say this as a libertarian. It's something I'm re- recognizing about myself and, and then realizing, hey, I've got this issue. I'm recognizing a whole bunch of other people do too. Yeah. We got a comment here on the on the Facebook uh, that uh, from Hill Kirby. He says, go to Philippe's and you'll see the old rail maps. Philippe's, Philippe's is an awesome place by uh, Dodger Stadium uh, where they have awesome uh, like French dips, I believe. And uh, yeah, hmm. I, I, I probably have seen them in the past and not really thought much about it. But uh, next time I go, if there's ever baseball again, if we ever have live events or anything like that again, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe I'll just have to go. Or if we ever have restaurants that we're allowed to sit in again. I don't know. I can't. Every time I have one of these conversations about what's going on right now, I listen to myself as I speak and I can't even believe. I'm saying some of the things I said. I mean, uh, I went on Gender Libertarians uh, show the other day, and I and somehow I, I just I was talking about what we're allowed to do here in LA because and in California because we have some stricter clampdown rules uh, than they do there in Georgia. And I was saying I'm pretty sure we're allowed to go walk walk our dogs. And then I, I was started thinking to myself, this is insane. I'm really having an actual conversation <laughs> where I'm thinking out loud whether wait am I allowed to walk my dog? I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to walk my dog. I, I mean, it's it's an absolutely mad world that we're living in. And you're one of the people that I saw in the libertarian sphere uh, kind of sounding the alarm on this, um, at least the seriousness of, of this uh, a lot earlier than a lot of people were seeing. I mean, I, I remember, I, I know you've been talking about this uh, on wealth, power and influence a lot, uh, but I, I remember you also posted one day something about you know, expect lockdown soon. And I was like, oh, come on, really lockdowns? I don't know. Maybe he's exaggerating. And I think two days later, <laughs> they, they made the announcement uh, in California that they were locking the state down until until April 19th. Uh, that's, of course, the card is always subject to change. And I have a feeling that that card is going to change, uh, sadly. But uh, what, what was your first early inklings on this, when did you first get a sense that this was going to be something uh, both perhaps medically serious, but also serious in, in the response that we're going to see um, at the government level? When I started realizing that it was going to be serious economically was probably mid-February, something like that. And it's because I spend the majority of my time on Twitter, actually, not Facebook. And there's a dynamic for the people that spend a lot of time on Twitter. You realize that everything that happens on Twitter happens on Facebook, maybe anywhere like 18 to 48 hours later. So Twitter is where all the breaking news happens and then it gradually trickles its way down to Facebook. So I started realizing that the conversations that everybody was having on Facebook were the conversations that had been had just recently on Twitter and everything on Twitter had moved beyond that. And so I started realizing, you know, this is a, there's a, there's a delay in the news getting out here and I need to start being more proactive about trying to bridge that gap. But I realized probably about the beginning of March that, that medically it was actually going to be a pretty big deal. And I have, one of my favorite people to listen to, favorite thinkers, I mention him on Wealth, Power, and Influence all the time, is Naval Ravikant, yeah. who's a, a, a fantastic uh, venture capital. He's a, the founder of, of um, AngelList. Um, he's a, a brilliant man. He's like a, he's like a modern Buddha. And he created a list on Twitter of the best 
um, people to follow for the, it's called, he called his list COVID-19. If you want to look for it, he's at Naval, just spelled N-A-V-A-L. And he just pulled together a bunch of live people. Now while we're, while we're at Do it. it. It's, that's, that is the most up-to-date live information that you're going to get anywhere on the internet. All the people who are populating the websites that other people go to get their data from, they're all posting all the stuff on Twitter first. Uh-huh. So I started following that list and realized very, very quickly that this was actually, it wasn't just the flu, that this was much more severe than that. The, the specific details of the incubation period and the infectiousness, the, the um, reproductive number, all of these things, I kind of got a crash course on how viruses work and realized that, that this was actually going to be a really big deal. And another person who really influenced my thought on it was uh, Nassim Taleb. And he's done a lot of really important work on risk in general. He was the one who wrote the book, The Black Swan. And um, more recently, he wrote the book, Skin in the Game, which is fantastic. Uh, but he was saying that, he said with, with risk like this, the, it's like it's the mark of a, of a fool or a charlatan to, to do math where you go, well, X number of people died in car accidents this year and only X number of people have died from this. Therefore, car accidents are more dangerous than this virus. That, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't square at all. That's not how you evaluate right. risk, especially potentially and, existential risk. And car accidents don't spread in, in any kind of exponential yeah. way. You're not going to catch a car accident from somebody. I mean, you might have a pile up where a few happen at the same time, but that's a, it's a completely different kind of, of you know, analysis you would have to do for that. Yeah, yeah. Car accidents are, are, are more or less on a broad scale. They're more or less predictable. You're going to know there's going to be about X number and there's ways of avoiding. You can, you can make 100% sure that you don't get in a car accident pretty easily. Um, but with the virus, you can't necessarily you know, control it that way. And the, the details that, that are most important are not the number of casualties so far. You want to look at the, the rate at which the casualties are growing and the nature of how they're growing and the specific nature of the, of the disease itself. And the fact that in this particular case, the disease could take up to, first they said up to two weeks to start showing symptoms, but then there was some evidence it could be up to four weeks before you start showing symptoms. Wow. And you can be contagious that whole time. So that means it's very, very difficult to control because you have people who don't know that they're sick who are out infecting other people. But then once you get sick, then the average person who winds up in the hospital, which was something like anywhere between 5 and 15% of the people who were infected, end up being in the hospital for a long time. So it's not like you just go to the emergency room, get some medicine, and you go home. Right. You have to like go to the hospital and you're wind up, winding up on a ventilator and you're, on a, you're in the hospital for two to three weeks. So you're, so individual people who are infected are a major draw on the health system. And if you get a whole bunch of them all at the same time, it was very easy to see just how quickly the healthcare system is going to get overwhelmed because part of the, I'm a, I'm, I'm very, a very strong capitalist. I'm fully in, I'm, I would be about as anarchist as you can get, but I've realized through this whole process that, that profit isn't the highest order good. And our country, in a lot of ways, as business part of our country, has been set up to maximize profit, which is fine. It's great. I think you should get as much as you possibly can. But what that meant was that there's very, very narrow margins for dealing with a black swan event where something comes out of nowhere that you couldn't predict. Right. So the hospitals don't, didn't have major overflow capacity for dealing with a sudden influx of new ICU patients. So as soon as you started running the numbers, you realized this isn't at the rate that, that things are, are, are spreading right now. It's going to take two to four weeks for the hospital capacity to not only be overwhelmed, but to be like eight or 10 times overwhelmed, like completely drowning. And as soon as the hospital system gets overwhelmed, that's going to start affecting other people who don't necessarily have coronavirus, but they come in with a heart attack or they have other issues. Right, right. And so these I'm already com- hearing stories of people getting surgeries canceled or pushed back indefinitely yep. uh, if they're deemed any less important than possibly dealing with this. And I think it's even being done preemptively. The hospital might not even be full now, but they're so concerned with it that they're just pushing everything that's, that's not the coronavirus to the side, which for some people might result in death. Yeah, exactly. So once this starts happening, then you're you're already dealing with an economic crisis. Like this, that in and of itself is going to create is the formula for an economic crisis. So the best way to to deal with that then would be for people to, on their own individual level, to take control of their own lives and do whatever they can to prevent the spread themselves. Mm-hmm. The problem was the media and politicians for the last four years, especially, have spent all of their time blowing their wad on every last little thing that could possibly be construed as a crisis. They've maxed the hysteria out on everything so people don't take them seriously anymore. 
So when they started, when, when people in the media or politicians, when they started saying, hey, this is a serious issue, you need to take this seriously, people like, yeah, whatever, everything's a serious issue with you guys. You know, impeachment right. was a serious issue and we saw how that turned out. So that because they blew their credibility, suddenly there was no, no warning mechanism. There was no way for people to start finding all of this out. And even it's still, a, even throughout the boy this who whole, cried wolf problem, but uh, yeah, the, prob- the problem at the end of that story is that there was a wolf. Yep. Yep. The wolf showed up and the wolf started eating people. And even now the wolf is still eating people. And there's lots of people that are still out there saying, no, there's no wolf. You know, you don't have to worry about it. And I, I, on one hand, I'm, I'm sympathetic to them. Like I'm, I, I understand why they think that because I, I'm, I detest the corporate press. And as Michael Malice says, the corporate press is the enemy of the American people. And I believe that now more strongly than ever. But you you can't be so blinded by your ideology that you miss a massive crisis that's actually looking you in the eyes. And the when I've seen that a lot of people, um, especially a lot of people that I've had a lot of respect for, who I think are very intelligent people, where once you once you see what's going on, once you realize what's happening, you can see in real time when that person switches the analytic part of their brain off and just starts running rehearsed scripts where they just start saying, oh, it's fake, it's a conspiracy, it's they're doing this for X, Y, Z. And I'm, I'm totally open to the idea that this is a conspiracy. I think there's, there's basically, you could probably believe just about anything and there's a very good chance that it's, that it's true given the number of interests that intersect here. Right. But yeah. whether that's the case or not, it doesn't remove the fact that we actually have a virus that we have yeah. to deal it, with. It can be a conspiracy and be a real virus all at once. That those absolutely. aren't necessarily separate things. Yes, absolutely. So, and, and that's where, that's kind of where I'm at at this point. I do think that there's, whether, whether it was the Chinese government deliberately doing it, I think they have strong incentives to do that whether it was the CIA doing it and trying to frame the Chinese government, they've got strong incentives to do that. There's lots of people who have strong incentives to do it. And I think whether it was done deliberately or not, there's no question that no one's going to let a good crisis go to waste, that they're going to use this opportunity to ram through a bunch of stuff and, and to, to take away a bunch of liberties. But the thing is, you can't focus on that and act like the virus isn't there. Because if you like what I've been telling people is they're like, oh, what's going to happen to our liberties? And I was like, well, I hope we have the luxury to worry about that. Because if this virus goes through, if, if people don't do anything, it was going to be really, really ugly. It was going to be the worst public health crisis in world history, no questions asked, just because of the specific nature of the virus. Fortunately, people started doing things. And my, my approach to this has been let's get through this virus. Let's do whatever we can to get through the virus, figure out how to develop herd immunity or whatever it is we're going to do to get through it and then worry about the loss of liberties later on. And I understand why libertarians freak out when they hear that. They're like, oh, because loss of liberties is the, the, the biggest thing in the world. But I, I want us to have the luxury to worry about our loss of liberties down the road. So let's get the virus taken care of and then we'll worry about everything else. And I think uh, a lot of what a lot of people might have concern with with that attitude is they might say, well, the problem is this virus might not go away, not in the traditional sense anyway. It might be something that comes back seasonally. Maybe they'll have a vaccine or better treatments by then. But on the larger sense, the the idea that the government can take these powers and take these liberties so easily with not only without resistance, but with a lot of people cheering it on, um, that even if it's not this particular virus, the next time there's any virus, whether it's more serious than COVID-19 or less serious, regardless of what it is, that the government will just instantly input these same things and say, well, this is what we did last time either it worked then or maybe we didn't do enough last time. Either way, I think they can use this experience to justify uh, taking more and more and more as they go. And as I see people around me, not just accepting it, but, but, and I'm not saying we shouldn't accept it from the private sense. Cause, cause one thing I, I saw, I think about a week before uh, the mayor uh, or not the mayor of LA, but the governor of, of California issued the safer at home order. Uh, pro- almost, most private companies in, in my industry and others had already canceled their productions, had already sent people home to, re- to work remotely. I can't do what I do uh, where I work here in Culver city uh, anywhere, but on site. So I was still working, but we were essentially working with a skeleton crew. We were all sort of practicing social distancing to the best we could. And this was all without any government telling us to do anything. Uh, as always, it seems that the government is, is kind of lagging behind with their orders. But I guess the concern that May would have with the idea of just getting through this is that, A, we might not get through it in any kind of reasonable amount of time. And B, by the time we get to get through it, you know, how many of our liberties are so far gone that we can't even, you can't even fight back anymore. Yeah, that's, and that's, I, I, I fully 
believe that that's a that's a major issue like that's something what you described is absolutely going to happen to the extent that the government can get away with it they're going to do that every single time so the the thing here is that we can't treat the responding to the virus and combating government overreach as a, a zero-sum game where right. it's one or the other and people that are people that are afraid of the government response who don't take the virus seriously by because of the nature of this problem, by going out and downplaying the severity of the virus to try to bolster your case that the government is, is overreaching, you're, you're causing active harm because people who are on the fence, who, especially if you're someone with a high profile, like I was, I, I absolutely adore Ron Paul, but I was so disappointed to hear his take on it. Mm-hmm. Because if, especially someone who's a very high profile, who has a lot of influence like that, if you come out and you downplay the virus and it turns out that the virus is worse than you thought, then your actions could directly influence someone to take actions that will, that will affect their lives, that will negatively affect their lives. Right. And I th- think the, if, if the problem, that, and this, this is where it ties directly into what I was talking about with libertarians before, and this has been my, my thought on libertarians all along here, is that if this, the problem is going to be solved, it's not going to be solved through through politics. It's not going to be solved by you yelling about how bad the government is, right. by going and posting on Facebook about the government being bad and taking away all of our liberties. But Honestly, screaming about the roads for 20 years, that changed the road system, didn't it? Yeah, exactly, oh, right. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> if anything, it just makes you look like, look, you're feeding into the libertarian stereotype where libertarians are the 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 heartless um, you know, corporation huggers who don't care if people live or die. You're just feeding into that. And it doesn't matter whether that's true or not. If that's, if that's people's perception of you, then it is true because perception is reality where this type of thing is concerned. So the, the, if, the, if this problem is going to be solved, it's going to be solved technologically. And this is the message that I want people to hear. I want people to hear that government solving the government problem is not a po- political problem. It's an engineering problem. The government is, a, is a, an arcane technology that has overstayed its... It's uh, it's it stayed past its its uh, expiration date, and it it's, needs to be replaced. It needs to be updated. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And it needs to be updated. It needs to be replaced with superior technologies. The problem is, right now, we don't have a lot of those technologies that are going to replace it. I think blockchain is an area where it's a lot of a lot of potential. And sidebar, I think that this this is going to be with all of these people stuck at home and focusing on te- technological issues. I think we're going to see an absolute explosion in technological innovation over the next several months. But back to the main point. I think that if the problem is going to be solved, it's going to be solved through technology, which means people need to be taking all of that energy that's focused on yelling at the government, and they need to invest that in trying to come up with ways to actually solve the problem. And if you don't think that the virus is a big deal, then, I, I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but please, please quit trying to downplay it because you're not accomplishing what you think that you're accomplishing. If you, it's like, it's like people think if they downplay the virus, then people are going to be like, Oh, actually, yeah, the virus isn't so bad. Oh, bad government. They're, they're not going to do that. <laughs> they're not going to become libertarians. And yeah, they're, they're not going to exactly. start advocating for their, for your liberties overnight because they, you, even if you somehow convince them the virus isn't as bad as, as people make it out to be. It'll just go right back to the status quo where they're oh, just like, okay, we're back Paul, to my politics. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where the, the thing with, with that I think libertarians need to need to learn is how to connect with people. This is, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because I tend to be very low empathy myself. And if you, if you listen to Jonathan Haidt, his, uh, he, he actually, um, evaluated the brains of liberals and conservatives and libertarians. And one of the things he came away with about libertarians is that they're fundamentally contrarian and they're low empathy. And those things kind of go together, mm-hmm. but people are, you can learn how people are wired you can figure out, you can evaluate people behaviorally as if it was just like an organism. Like you might go um, study ants and see how ants behave. You can do the same thing to people. You can learn how people work. You can learn how they're wired. And using empathy then is a very pragmatic thing to do. Because if you can figure out how people are wired, then you can figure out how to communicate with them in the right way to get them to do what you want. The problem with libertarians is that they're low empathy. So they don't do that very well. So they, libertarians have all the right ideas, but they have a breakdown between how to actually communicate those ideas to other people. 
I mean, just think about any other problem, how you might want to approach communicating with, with you know, besides the virus. Uh, let's say someone is just concerned for the poor. Well, what's what method is going to convince them more to your way of thinking? Is it going to be if you say, ah, being poor is not a problem. People can just work and get their way out of it. It doesn't matter. Or if you say, yeah, I totally understand. I share your concern. Here's why uh, adopting a more libertarian solutions uh, would, would really help the poor even more. Here's how state government policies are actually hurting the people. And that's why I believe this way I do. I mean, just forget what even the words I'm saying, just the the approach to someone, one, you're yes. being combative with someone and telling them they don't matter, you don't care what they're thinking, and others, the other way acknowledges that what their concern, even if you don't agree that the concern as as much as a concern as they do, that doesn't matter because the, the solution should still be the same, uh, even if it's a smaller concern, even if it's a bigger concern, whatever their level of concern is of the virus, you can still present the same solutions and the same positive image. Absolutely. And the, the solutions that we need here in this case are things like um, like decentralizing medicine. That's, I mean, that's going to be a great side effect of this is that a lot of um, the medical approach to this has, has been like basically forcibly decentralized because that was the only way that they could actually get a handle on this because it was um, FDA and CDC and WHO bureaucracy that stood in the way and has, has, has um, restricted the response to this. And I, I think that that's a very, those are, those are good things to highlight. Say, hey, look how Look how government bureaucracies are screwing us over. Like that's that's fine when you're highlighting this specific problem, and then but especially if you could pre- present a specific solution, how not just like in an ideal world, here's how things could right. work. But if we first end the specific, entire state, then we can. It's like that's not a yeah. Really it's good never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It's never your. This is this is a this is another libertarian thing, and it's and it's a lot of conservatives do this as well in politics where they. They look at the, 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 they survey the field in front of them and then they abstract away and they say, okay, now let's say in an ideal world, things would be like this. Therefore, I'm going to act as if the world is my ideal world. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, that's where the thinking just ends. It's magically things are just going to change, but you have to deal with the world, the real world as it is. And you have to evaluate your specific actions in the real world and the specific consequences that they're going to, those actions are going to have. And that's where empathy comes back in, where you, you realize how people are wired and you understand it doesn't matter what I intend. It doesn't matter whether I'm right. What matters is how other people perceive me and how other people are going to react to me. And if you study humans long enough, then you can start to predict how they're going to act and you can hack their behavior to achieve the ends that you want. How do we break through this problem where there is such widespread distrust of the mainstream media? There is such uh widespread distrust of the government to the point that, like you said, I think that's one of the reasons that we are where we are, regardless of how how much of a threat or not someone thinks it is. Uh, Either way, I think we'd be way more prepared. Were people able to actually trust what was being told to them? And I think even now, I mean, I, I I think the virus is a real threat in many ways. I think that's pretty obvious at this point. Um, d- due to both the health reasons and the government response, I think they're kind of working hand in hand to, to both cause damage in their own ways. But how, how do we find a way where we can move forward and sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say regain that trust in those systems because I think those systems are archaic and should, should go away. Uh, but how do we find a way as a society, I hate to say as a society, um, but find a way <laughs> as uh, individuals and, and voluntary groups to sort of communicate when there are real tragedies and try to organize in a decentralized sort of organizational way for big events and big disasters like this when there is so much distrust with the with the current systems like what's the what's the sort of libertarian replacement for uh the mainstream corporatized media which is is really hard to distinguish from government at this point anyway and from the government itself how can we kind of present another view and actually get people thinking critically and not just blindly trusting or mistrusting what they hear that's a it's a that's a huge question. There's so and much. And I don't expect you to have all the answers here. Today, but. <laughs> but it's <laughs> solve the, it, Matt. Please. This is this is this is the area that I find the most fascinating is coming up with the the solutions that will replace the current the the current subpar options that we have. The reason that the government and when I say the government, I'm meaning the whole the whole institute all the whole institutional bureaucratic states, which is this would be corporate press. You could even include Hollywood because it's been so thoroughly infiltrated sure. at this point. This whole thing. How do you how do how do we replace that? Well, for one thing, to replace something, you have to have something to replace it with. So a lot of the libertarian quote unquote solutions so far have just been let the market solve it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, well, how? Like what the market and, can and bring. We don't lots have of a free options. market, so we need we need a bridge in there somehow. Yes. The reason that the, that these the that the, the institutions exist the way they do now is actually because of the market. 
because there's market demand for them. So if we want new institutions that are better, then we have to create the alternatives. And then like, this is a basic tenet of sales that you don't just go tell someone, Hey, your thing sucks. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to someone and you like want them to want them to buy a new car that you're trying to sell them or something, you don't just go say, Hey, wow, your car sure sucks. Your car's a piece of shit. Now come by mine. (laughs) Exactly. People are like, screw you. What you do is you you create. (laughs) It's my grandma gave me this car. (laughs) You, you create the new better solution. And then you go to them and you say, hey, check out this awesome solution that I have. Check out this Check out this really cool car I have that does all these neat little whiz-bang things or whatever. You make them really want that car before you even try to sell it to them. Yes, but right now we don't have the alternatives. This is why I say the liberty movement is not, the future of the liberty movement is not in politics. That That's dead and gone. The Ron Paul move era is dead. That's all dead and gone. The future of the liberty movement is in business, education, and entertainment. This is where libertarians need to be because in business, you can be building the, 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 the actual businesses that can serve. Like if you think that the future of, of um, society is, is with like private law that's, that's um, done through, uh, through like a contractual um, law enforcement providers or something, start building it. So create that solution. Create something that will work in the market. And you could say, well, they won't let me do this, that, or the other. Okay, whatever. Treat the government as a constant. The government is just what it is and you have to build around it. You have to, it's like a, it's like a, a, a node on the network that's gone bad and you just have to route around it. So just t- take it for what it is and build the alternative solution that's going to be better and, and build it in a way that markets to solve specific problems that someone has right now. Then that's so how would be business. And then education and entertainment kind of are, are on two halves of the same coin. It's like, yeah. like what we're doing right now is a form of education and a form of entertainment. Yeah, I would call us a and entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah, I like that. Edutainment. That's what I try to achieve with Lines of Liberty. I like to help people learn about new things, think about things in a new way, and hopefully do it in an interesting way, not in an NPR, you know, three-second soundbite, uh, you know, hear some uh, jingles in the background, go to another soundbite, you know, really dry kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and libertarians, like the ideas, the stuff that interests us, the stuff that we talk about is dry as hell to most people. Most people don't give a shit about the stuff that we, that we care about. So it, the onus is on us. This is, again, another basic marketing principle. If people aren't buying what you're selling, that's on you. You have to figure out a way to make it appealing to them. You don't just sit around and say, oh, you're so stupid. Why aren't you buying the thing that I'm selling? It would make your life so much better. You have to go and you have to show them how it would make their life better. And not just theoretically, but actually provide them with a thing that will make it better. So this is where, so, so things like the Babylon Bee, honestly, is, is fantastic. That's brilliant. The fact that they've gotten into the mainstream is, is fantastic because the power of satire, the power of humor is so, so good. But then this is the, like the silver lining to all of this is that to this whole coronavirus thing is all of these people are stuck at home now. They're looking for content. So if you're passionate about your ideas, then start a YouTube channel, start a podcast, so do, like, do something to start getting your ideas in front of people and come up with ways to make it um, interesting. And, and don't think of stuff, like don't just tell them the stuff that you're interested in. Find the stuff that they're going to be interested in, your, whatever your target audience is, and then Become put the it in a way that's viable in. to them. Right. Yes, absolutely. Like the, 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 the phrase is be, um, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. I mean, it's a little trite, but like that's, that's very true. That you have to become the change that you want to see in the world. And if, if libertarians could, could get away from the political ninny, like that's just the idea that we're going to use the libertarian party to ever affect any kind of change is, is, is madness to me. It's not, it's, Think about how many man hours, and I, I really don't want to discourage people that I know a lot of people that do this, and I and I I know they have good hearts, and I and maybe it does have an effect in some way, uh, just out there meeting people. But all, think about all the man hours that the Libertarian Party on every single level has to put in uh, to get petitions in every single state. If you just add up all those hours, what if all those hours instead of that? And again, I'm not trying to discourage people from doing what they feel is best. Uh, if those hours went to some kind of uh, you know business idea or went to forming a, a new kind of media or just went to producing something that people really found interesting. How many people get a knock on their door and are excited about you know some, talking to somebody about some political petition they want to sign? I, I imagine at least nine out of 10 people don't even want to hear from you in the first place. Um, again, I don't They'd want rather to talk to people. a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, I don't want to discourage people, but I do want people to think about these things more. You know, what if you spent eight hours walking your day? What could you have done with those eight hours? What could you have created with those eight hours? Who, could you, who else could you have reached 
especially in today's world, you can obviously reach far more people on the internet than you can uh, walking around knocking door to door. I walked around knocking door to door for Ron Paul uh, a decade ago, and uh, I talked to a lot of people. I can't tell you how many I reached, especially out here in Los Angeles. Uh, but I, I know for a fact I, I reach a lot more today by by podcasting than I ever did knocking door to door telling people about Ron Paul. And this and the, the idea I think it's flawed from its very inception. The idea that you're gonna that we're gonna affect libertarian change through politics because like our whole message is that politics is a bad solution. Like that you don't like politics by its nature brings about bad bad things. So the what like how do you think? then okay well we need to get into politics and just change it or something it just doesn't it doesn't even it doesn't even compute for me and honestly a a libertarian society would have no need for a libertarian party because if if the society was sufficiently libertarian enough you wouldn't need the stuff that a libertarian political party does because people wouldn't be looking to the state for those problems so you're not going to vote the state away I mean, if your party gets big enough to have any sort of, it's already happening now. If the party gets big enough to have any sort of influence, it's going to be taken over. And it's it's funny because I can already, I've only been to a couple libertarian party functions. Um, The smaller, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But the more you go up when you're at a state convention and then you're at a a national convention, you can, you can feel the, in the air, the, the, and and most people there really mean well, but you can feel in the air, the, the politicky ickiness of it start to creep in. I'm sure it's less so than it would be at the DNC or the RNC, but you can feel it. There's people kind of edging it for your vote. Oh, how are you going to, how are you going to, what, you know, you can see people kind of forming alliances and politicking and, and why would that stop? If it's already happening at the state party level, why is that not going to continue if they actually get into government? Uh, I I just, it's, uh, it's, it's not, again, I, I know so many people that are active in the Libertarian Party, and the vast majority of them, I think, are very well-intentioned and very principled, but it's just something to think about, you know? It's something to think about. Is this a battle you can even win in this way? I think the most we can hope to get out of out of politics is to just happen to catch someone's attention, uh, happen to catch fire like Ron Paul did, happen to find someone that happens to get a national stage and, and captures hearts and minds of people, but how, how can we even do that in the Libertarian Party when they're never going to give you the time of the day? They're never going to blast you on CNN uh, if you have a principal candidate. If you have a prince, if you have a shitty candidate that they might be able to use for something, they might give you some time if they think it might hurt someone else or, or shape things in a way they want to. But you're never going to be taken seriously. You're never going to get a real spotlight. I think Ron Paul got super, super lucky to get where he did as far as he did in the Republican primary. Even someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's nowhere near as principled, but is fairly principled in her own way, uh, at least in relation to a lot of the Democrat Party. She was quickly shuffled out of the debates after a couple of them. Ron Paul somehow somehow was able to stay in there uh, till, till the bitter end and, key, and and really garner attention. But I think that was a moment in time. It was a moment in history we can all look back upon. Uh, it certainly affected me in, in, a, in a big way, but that doesn't mean that that's the path forward. Uh, that means that that was a path for many of us to get to where we are. But the path forward, I mean, how many times are we going to have a, a, a random spark event like that where someone just happens to capture the hearts and minds and gets enough attention for people to really draw attention and create sort of a movement? Instead, I think instead of looking for that next savior, that next Ron Paul, that next guy that, to catch that that fire, we just need to create that fire in our personal lives, you know, create that success in our personal lives, be sort of mini Ron Pauls and exhibit it, exhibit it in our lives, don't just tell people about it, don't just yell about how the government sucks, show them why it sucks by being so much better than that. Yes, absolutely. People always point to Ron Paul and they say, well, Ron Paul did, did, did Ron Paul did it, why couldn't we do it? He's the, he is the exception that proves the rule. And, and also pointing to Ron Paul for people that are, I'm not saying you were doing this, but people point to Ron Paul and justify LP action because of Ron Paul. I mean, he was, he, he did it as part of the GOP. So I, like the, you're, you don't even make any sense at all from the, from the, the very comparison. beginning. Yeah, yeah. It does, if anything, it, it proves the other way because when Ron Paul ran on the Libertarian Party in 88, he got zero attention nationally. Yes. Yep. I think that the, the, I like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be hard on people. Like I don't want to, um, I don't want to be, like I said, I'm, I'm, I naturally tend to be low empathy because I'm a very good libertarian. I don't, I don't want to, to just tell people that they're dumb and stupid and that their ideas suck. I'm, I'm wanting, I'm wanting to get through to people that, to, to understand that the, the absolute magnitude of the project that's in front of us. I think that, that if, if, if you think that you're going to accomplish something through the LP, you don't fully appreciate the magnitude of the forces that are arrayed against you. And this is where I'm, I, I won't say his name, but I'm not a fan at all of the chair of the LP. But I'm um, <laughs> not he, to name names, but he is the current. <laughs> so you guys can do some research to figure that out on your own. If yeah. You yeah. You might be able to Google it or something. I'm, um, but I, I actually think that um, I, th- I think that he is his his strategy is a little underappreciated. 
because the if you have this is the nature of politics that it it corrupts people and that the only way to get things done is by compromising and appealing to the lowest common denominator and a lot of people have wondered why the LP is seems to be have this hard on for going after SJWs and i think that it actually makes a lot of sense in this upcoming election in 2020 anybody who's remotely right wing is going to vote for trump it's like it's 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 a done deal there's no way that anybody is possibly going to vote for the democrats so you're not going to pull right wing leaning people away from trump but the Democrats have showed their ass so completely for the last four years that there's a good chance that you might be able to pull disenchanted progressives away from the Democrats. And politics is a numbers game. It's literally just a numbers game. A political party is not a platform for evangelism. A political party is an organization that is in the business of winning battles. Politics and war, I can't remember who, who said it, but politics and war are a continuum. We didn't, we, we haven't eliminated war. We just call it politics instead. And it's a war where the armies just show up and you count whoever has the most people and the army with the most people is the, is the, is the army that wins. This is the, this is the nature of politics. So you, you don't have the luxury of principles in politics. I said before that, that um, in politics, principles are just decorations for dead men. It's like, it's great. People will give you laudits for having been such a principled guy, but you will never accomplish anything because of the nature of the game. So if you're going to be involved in politics, then you need to be involved in politics pragmatically. So there's, there is stuff that if more people vote for the Libertarian Party, there is stuff that can, there's like good stuff that can come from that. Like in this last election, the, it was the first time ever that the Libertarian Party has covered the spread between the, the, um, the, the winner and the loser. So this means that enough people voted for the Libertarian Party to change the outcome of the election. So you don't necessarily have to win the election to change the outcome. You can control the outcome just by getting enough people to vote. And in but theory, that should make politicians want to cater or at least somewhat to libertarian ideas. So if they know they have to take some of that spread in order to win. Exactly. So this is where I'm, um, this is where you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like I would rather live in a, a I'd rather live with a state that is, only 90% bad than a state that's 92% bad. You know, like if I, if I have the choice between I'm um, a bad state and a worse state, I'll take the bad state. And this is where, again, I was talking about where you abstract this out and you start relating this ideal world instead of the real world. We don't get the option of a libertarian choice. We get the choice of bad or worse. So if you're going to play on that field, then you've got to take the bad choice. You don't take the third option that doesn't actually exist. It's funny because you you on Facebook used Rothbard as your last name, and and Rothbard was a big fan of you know pushing the button, or he would push the said he would push the button and end the state today. Uh, but he also much like you, and, and I think people often lose this part of Rothbard when they when they talk about his anarchism. He was like you in the sense of if you're gonna play in politics, it's okay to to sort of pick favorites, pick bads and worses. I mean, he there wasn't a presidential election or a local election that Murray Rothbard didn't have an opinion on, and 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 sort and end up choosing someone on who was somewhat better in whatever way he would see. Um, I mean, he would always support the, end up usually supporting the more anti-war candidate. And that would often lead him to siding and, and sort of a caucusing with so actual communists and actual socialists because they were also anti-war. And he saw that as the, the better thing to do if you're going to be involved in politics. Now, a lot of me, my people, I mean, you were even saying it earlier, like you're not going to get anywhere in politics. So maybe at that point you make the choice. That's not the place for me. But, uh, and I, I, I sort of agree in the, of the sense that like, I, I kind of, I would love the Libertarian Party to be, you know, Referencing the Dave Smith Nick Sarwark debate from last year, uh, I would love the Libertarian Party to be what Dave Smith's more closer to what Dave Smith's view of it is. That would be like ideal for me. I would love to see Libertarian candidates out there saying that kind of stuff, being anti-war, being anti-Fed, uh, talking about the issues that matter to me. But from Nick's point of view, I understand it. You know, I it doesn't. I don't agree. I don't like it. I, I shouldn't say I don't agree with it. I don't. I just don't like it. But it is. It does speak to a truth about what politics is. And if you are a political party, you sort of can't avoid, like you said, doing political things. Uh, otherwise, why be a political party? Just be an organization. Just be fee. Just be somebody that just talks about the philosophy. Uh, but once you do engage in politics, that ickiness is part of the game. So either don't engage or or acknowledge the fact that you're going to have to get icky and you're going to have to, you know, roll around with pigs. Absolutely. This is where, this is where principles actually become an enemy in, in, in politics because 
the uh, if you're gonna if you want to be involved in politics, but you want to be stay true to your principles and you want to um, do the the you want to make sure everything's libertarian, you want to have a libertarian candidate. What you're saying is that you want the party to be irrelevant. And, and, and for me personally, I really don't care. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to evaluate this dispassionately. If you say we want a candidate who's anti-war and anti-Fed and those are that's his platform, then like I fully agree. I, I would love to be able to vote for a president who's anti-war and anti-Fed. The thing is, nobody there's like 300,000 people in the, in the world that care about that. There's no, like no one else is going to care about that in the world. Yeah. <laughs> that's not enough so, to get them voted for. Even if all those people in the world could vote in the U S that's, that's probably not even enough. <laughs> yeah. So when you say that that's, that needs to be the message for the candidate, what you're saying is I want a candidate that nobody cares about and nobody pays attention to. And, and this is just the nature of politics. So, so then what you're saying is I want it for people that are going to get involved in politics. And that that's the kind of candidate they're going to put forth is you're saying, I want to waste my time, frankly, because you're going you're gonna to go throw all this time and effort into putting up a candidate that nobody's going to pay any attention to and the world's just going to go on without you. So this is where, like you said, if you took all of that time and money and you invested it in something else, in something that's actually productive, what could you accomplish? The idea that you need a presidential candidate for evangelism is an old idea. That, like, that, that's not the world that we live in anymore. You can accomplish, like you said, way, way more through some type of, a me- of media. Like, like Michael Malice... I'm sure he could accomplish way more with his platform than he could if he ran as the as the the LP nominee. Sure. Like culture is Not where is where change is going to happen. It's going to happen through business, education, and entertainment. And Malice is someone that's able to have progressives and conservatives and all these different uh, walks of life on his show and never uh, talk to them like they're an idiot or a statist or anything like that. He acknowledges everybody's views, gives them space to talk, and still gives a- an excellent platform, even though he doesn't explicitly always say it that way, for essentially libertarian ideals. I mean, I mean, he is an anarchist, and he really, if you listen to what he says, that's what you're getting. But he doesn't do it in a way where he's th- you know slamming it down your throat. He does it with wit and humor and the, the ways that actually, the things that actually attract people to someone uh, to listen to them. And, and just imagine if you took all this time, especially now, especially right now, I have more time than I know what to do with. That's not true. I, 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 I take, I have a whole full schedule every single day now during lockdown. Uh, but I mean, I'm using the time to improve myself in every single way I can to improve myself physically, to eat better, to exercise more, uh, to get more outs- outdoors time, even though I can't go to the beach or, or go to the parks or a lot of the parks. I was actually a par- at a park today, so they're not all closed. Uh, but if we just took all that time, uh, all that time you might put into a candidate, all the time you might put to knocking on doors, just to improving yourself, even just to getting new skills, uh, becoming someone in your community that people look up to and respect because of their own success, because of how they treat other people, and becoming that sort of mini successful person, then you can become that Ron Paul to your community and your group because by example, by showing them, you're not just talking from from not to uh, you know not to trash anyone that does live there, but uh, not just talking from your mom's basement on your computer about how the government is bad and how things need to be be different while you're you know you just have the same shitty job you had 10 years ago uh if you're improving yourself and improving yourself as a person people are going to naturally flock to you you're going to naturally network more you're going to naturally have more people's attention because they're a lot more likely to listen to you if you're someone who's successful and contributes in your community and they see that than if you're just screaming about how everything's terrible Absolutely. This is where the name, uh, the name of the, the podcast, we actually, where we got it from, the wealth, power, and influence, mm-hmm. because the, the, the world turns on wealth, power, and influence. That's, this, is, this is what happened. If you, if you want to read a really good book along these lines, it's, it's kind of heavy. It's a slow read, but it's um, The Machiavellians by James Burnham. Uh, yeah. And they talk about the, like, I, Machiavelli got kind of a bad rap, but the Machiavellians had a very interesting view on the world. And it had, it, they all, it all revolved around this idea of dealing with the world as it is and not as we wish it was or as it could be, dealing with the world that we have now. And the reality is the world that we have now runs on wealth and power. And anybody who has wealth and power by default has influence. So this sounds dirty, but um, for example, I, doesn't sound um, as dirty as politics. <laughs> but yeah, 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 t- true. But when I, uh, I posted the tweet, we did a, an episode on Jeffrey Epstein when that was in the news. And I, I was the one who posted the tweet from the account um, kind of describing the, the breakdown of the, the episode. And I said something in there about um, how like you can, you can get, you can sit around and yell about, about pedophiles in like elite pedophiles or whatever. You can get mad about it. Or you can start making yourself so wealthy and powerful that you can actually do something about it. Right. And 
I, we got a lot of bad feedback from that. People saying, oh, you should just sit back and let them take it. And, you know, just sit back and just let kids get molested and whatever. And I was like, no, you're not going to do anything about it unless you have wealth and power. If you're some schmuck sitting around on the internet yelling about it, you're not changing anything. You're just not because- stopping any kid from getting molested by, by screaming on the internet. And by exactly. Just because you're, you're talking about the subject doesn't mean you're actually changing anything. The thing with government is that, that if, if you want the worst version of it, the best thing you can do is attack it head on. And this goes for, for people that, that are in, endorsing big government as well. So this is like what you were saying, where you like malice, he goes and he just has decent conversations with people from all across the spectrum. And it makes people a lot more open to listening to his ideas. If you go out and you just start attacking the, the stuff that people have, the, the ideas that they like, because a lot of people depend on the government. It's, it's just plain fact. A lot of people depend on the government, whether they should or shouldn't, whether there's other things that they could be doing, it doesn't matter. They do depend on the government. And if you could, if you just like, like push that button and just ended the state overnight, it would actively harm a lot of people. A lot of people would, prob- would probably die because of it. So it's not like if you just ended the state overnight, suddenly the society would just automatically start governing themselves peacefully. Right. It would just descend into absolute Especially chaos. Especially society and wants that. I mean, a lot of society wants to be governed. They want these systems yes. in place. If you just remove them, they're not going to stop wanting them. You have to change the, 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 the reasons that they want them in the first place. You have to change society so people don't need to be dependent. You have to change people's mindset so they're no longer independent. Yes. That, that's why I think the shift you guys did a couple years ago, uh, which, which Jason did, and then you became a part of it, uh, shifting from just specifically talking about the ideas, the ideas, the ideas, to really talking about about, like you said, how to gain wealth, power, and influence. And it's still a completely libertarian show. You, you listen to it, and it's the ideas are still there. It's just the priorities have, have kind of changed, and the, and the presentation has kind of changed. And I think it's a, it's a shift we all need to make in, in one way or another. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people have accused us of abandoning liberty. And, and in our minds, we didn't abandon it. We took the next step. Mm-hmm. We, we took the next step forward. Rather than just identifying all of the problems, now we're trying to talk about solutions. We're trying to figure out ways to solve these problems. And it's not just... Like your thinking has to go beyond, well, the market could solve this. And like, it's like, that's where everyone's thoughts just, just end. And then they don't actually start thinking about how the market could solve it. And then even if you're thinking about how the market could solve it, we have to figure out how to get from here to there. Like libertarianism is an end. It's not a means. If you take a libertarian approach to politics, you're not going to get a libertarian outcome. This is the, this is the, 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 the nature of how humans are. Like you said, most people would rather have security than have liberty. So when we talk about wanting liberty or we advocate for liberty, we're actually turning people away. We're pushing, we're turning people off. They're like, I don't want liberty. If you have liberty, that means people are free to do whatever they want. And, and that's this, you could spend all day arguing about the, about the nitty gritty of that and you'll never accomplish anything. Or you can just provide the alternative. And I don't have the answers to it. I don't know exactly what the alternatives are going to be. I don't know how we're going to get from a, um, you know, a, 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 a corporatized republic to some sort of like a, like a privately governed technocracy or something like that. I don't know how, how that's going to happen. I just know that the only way it's going to happen is with investment and, and like mental and physical capital from a lot of people who are all focused on trying to solve that problem. And that's where I, I kind of started going down this road when I, when I encountered a lot of people that are in, in venture capital, Silicon Valley type people who are very, they're very libertarian. And, but I realized that their approach to it was much, it was just much more intelligent. It wasn't ideological. They're like, yeah, I would rather live in a world where it's much more libertarian, but clearly we're not going to vote our way there. So we need to figure out a way to build that world. So they're not even involved in politics. They don't pay attention to politics at all, really. Or if they do, it's very pragmatic. It's like in 2016, it's like, well, would I rather would I rather have Hillary Clinton as president or would I rather have Donald Trump as president? There's no other option. It's one or the one or the other. So which one would I rather have? Well, I'd rather have Trump. Okay, I'm going to vote for Trump. It's very pragmatic. Take each decision as it comes because your principles aren't going to get you anywhere in politics. If you want, if you, and if you uh, value your principles, then you need to be using stuff other than politics to bring about the world where your principles can be fully realized. Yeah, you can keep your principles and st- and stay out of politics. That's real easy. It's only when you get into politics that you have to start compromising. So if you really want to keep yeah. them, maybe the best thing to do is to keep them and and you know do 
do things, you do you, you know, do things in your own life to improve yourself. I mean, who, who are more pe- people more likely to listen to? Someone screaming about why the government ruined the response to coronavirus and held companies back and all of this stuff, which is all true, or someone who starts the company that, you know, finds a way to easily test everybody very quickly. You know, who, who's going to get more attention? Who's going to get more? Uh, and they might have the same exact principles, but one of those people is going to have a lot more influence. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And when and when you if so say you were able to to get the right political candidate, the right presidential candidate who had just the right message or whatever, what's the first thing that he that you're gonna need to do? You're gonna go need to go get money. Like politics runs on money. This is just the way it is. Libertarians don't have any money. There's no they're they're libertarians by and large are just not wealthy people. So that means that when it comes like wealth ultimately is power. And power is influence. So if you don't have any wealth, you don't have any influence. And it doesn't matter how good your ideas are. It doesn't matter how right you are. Being right only matters when other people care. And other people don't care how right libertarians are. So it's so there's so not only is it is it good for your own community and good for your own um, well-being to focus on um, like like Jason says, controlling the source of your income and being able to maximize your own human capital. Not only is that like have some intangible value. But it also actually has very practical, pragmatic, political value too. Because imagine if, if like we were able to just snap our fingers and suddenly the fifty wealthiest people in the world were all devout ANCAPs. Like think about uh, think about what they would accomplish with that. So we can't snap our fingers to do that, obviously, but we can start working toward that. And I think in the course of, of those doing people. that, exactly. And in the course of doing that, the the, the act of trying to improve your life every day. Um, the, the act of trying to improve your productivity, I mean, your, the value of your life actually increases your, your subjective value of your life as well. It's very rewarding and you become healthier, you become happier, you become more influential. All of this stuff all starts with improving your own self. And you can even change how the entire network works if you just become, let's say you become a super wealthy person and then someone else becomes a super wealthy person. They do it all without the state. They do it all in private ways. Now, some of those people that become wealthy by... Maybe they leverage the state. Maybe they lobby the state more. Maybe they might start to say, well, maybe I don't really even need to bother with that. Maybe I can just take my energies away from lobbying and using the state at all. Maybe I can just do everything outside like these guys did. And you can start to change the way people look at wealth, look at keeping their wealth. Uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, become wealthy and use the state to help protect their wealth. Maybe you can be part of the, re- the way that you prove you don't even need to bother with that. You can actually become more wealthy by not utilizing the state. And then you can change the entire, you know, the entire system and make the state irrelevant overall. Absolutely. You chart the course. You chart the course for everyone else. And, and, and honestly, I've gotten to the point where now I have no problem with someone using their wealth to manipulate policy. Because again, removing the ideal, not ignoring the ideal world, I'm going to deal with the exact world that I have right now. And if I'm, say I was a wealthy businessman and I'm like, okay, I can not try to manipulate this policy, leave the bad policy in place and continue, the world will continue forward with this bad policy. Or I can use my money to try to influence and create a good policy. So do I want to live in the world where there's a good policy or the world where there's a bad policy? you You can make it very, very simple. And obviously, you would rather live in the world with the good policy. Like, if you had the choice, would you rather live in, like, so say you can't eliminate the government. We're going to take that off the table. You get two options. You can either have a large, expansive totalitarian government, or you can have a slightly less large, slightly less expansive, slightly less totalitarian government. Which one would you rather have? Yeah, I suppose Obviously, less totalitarian you'd rather have the, the latter one. <laughs> right. Exactly. Do I want to be so, beat 100 times a day or 92 times a day? I'd rather zero, but if those are my only options, give me 92. Exactly. And that, when people say, well, that means you're voting to be beaten 92 times. No, I'm not. I'm voting to not be beaten 100 times. Mm-hmm. And like, so voting can be very, very pragmatic. It's, it's, and, and actually, it should be pragmatic because that's what's actually going to change things. Well, Matt, I'm glad we could actually uh, turn a lot of this coronavirus into a, a really a more of a, a positive take on things and uh, just uh, providing, uh, just like you're advocating doing, we're trying to provide uh, a different sort of positive take on the philosophy of liberty, how to apply them to our lives here. And I think that's what's really what you and Jason have been focusing on the last uh, year, year and a half here. And I think it's, a, it's an important shift. It's one everyone needs to take into account because the more we look at the state for solutions, uh, whether it's political or otherwise, the more we're going to sort of legitimize that as the, as the way to get solutions. Um 
I'm curious, just before we sign off here, where, where do you see all this stuff going? Where do you see things going, both economically, both with government uh, response to the virus? Do you see these clampdowns or lockdowns uh, getting worse, getting more stringent, uh, whether it comes to trade or travel or just leaving our house? I mean, I, I can still walk my dog. Maybe I can only walk it once a day next week. Who knows where this is going? Um, or, or do you see things kind of kind of ramping down once maybe once things calm down technologically, maybe once that when there's more of a medical solution to the coronavirus, perhaps then as a response to people clamoring for it, uh, we'll begin to get our, our liberties back, so to speak. I mean, where do, where do you see this all headed in the next you know few months? Short term, I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic. Um, I think that I think things are going to get quite a bit worse. Um, and with that being said, like I, I the how much worse it gets depends on how much people resist the, the, the government. It's a little counterintuitive. The more that people resist the government response to this, the worse that things are going to get. So for that reason, I would beg people to just, just bide your time and, and let, let us get through this crisis period. Because again, if you want the worst possible government, attack it head on. Start rebelling against it head on. It's going to crack down. So short term, I, I don't think things are going to be great. I think things are going to get kind of ugly. But then lo- in the long run, I'm very optimistic because I'm always optimistic about human potential. I'm always optimistic about the human spirit because the human spirit is, is magnificent. It can accomplish so, so much. And I think that um, there's one last thing I'll say is that the, the, every society is from, the, from that book, The Machiavellians, this is the big thing I took away from it. Every society is run by the elites. It doesn't matter how you structure the society, you're always going to have elites and then you're going to have the plebs. This Even is the, the libertarian like the party itself has people that are seen as the elites of the party. Exactly. You know? It's just the nature of human. It's the, the way that humans end up um, sorting themselves out. You always have the elites at the top and it's the 90, 10 rule. The, even in that 90 and 10, you're going to have of the, of the 10%, that's going to have a 90 and 10 right. of that 10, you know, all the way up. So um, the thing about the elites is that they want to be protected and secure in their power and their wealth. To do that, they need to have the plebs be um, satisfied and docile. So they have an incentive to keep people from rebelling and keep people from getting out of hand. So that's a there's that's a pretty powerful force where they're gonna want like like they're gonna want to get sports back ASAP because they want people to be yeah. satisfied. They don't. That's what, want that's what people keeps people sitting be, on the couch and not worried about what's going on out there. So uh, exactly, that's probably a big one. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I would rather have, I, I, I want it to be as peaceful as possible. So I don't want, um, if, if people start rebelling and, and, and rioting and everything, it's just going to get really, really ugly. Sure. And, and again, this is like, you don't have the option of things not being ugly. It's going to be ugly one way or the other. It's a matter of how ugly it's going to get. So um, in the long run, I think things are going to be very good because um, the nature of technology moving forward is that it's decentralizing and it's, and it's, the, the, the more powerful technology gets, the more powerful individual people are. And so every individual person gets more powerful through more technology. So technological innovation is going to continue. And, um, and, and ultimately, I will always bet on the human spirit. Well, Matt, I think that's an awesome positive message to, to end things on. So I appreciate you taking the time to come and join us. Uh, yeah, it's great, great having you on, great having your thoughts on. And I'm sure we'll, we'll do more of these down the road. Yeah, sounds good. I'd love Take to. Take care. Be sure to check out Wealth, Power, and Influence, of course. All right, kiddos. I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Matt Erickson providing his perspective on coronavirus. As I said, he's been tracking this thing uh, from the get-go, probably before anybody else I know was really sounding the alarm on things. And I do have to say, I think Matt and Jason are doing an awesome job with wealth, power, and influence, providing a different perspective and not really shoving liberty down people's throats. But if you listen to what they're doing, it's all right there. It hasn't changed as much as the marketing has. Uh, but I think the focus is important. The focus, focus on building wealth, on uh, having more power in the sense of having more influence, having more persuasion over people. And at the end of the day, as we discussed, I think the best thing we can do right now, especially with people that find themselves like me with extra time, is to invest in your own skills, to double down on things you're already doing like I'm doing here at Lions of Liberty, like we're all doing here, uh, promoting so much more content, not just these live streams and these extra public shows. We're also doing extra bonus content. It's the best time ever to join the Pride, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We are almost entirely listener funded. We do have a few affiliate ads, but almost all the funding of this show does come through Patreon and 
And of course, now 10% of that will be going to help uh, Donor C and Greg Glyer with their coronavirus response. I do appreciate everybody's help and support out there. So many of you have been out, out here for so long and we're always getting new listeners. Uh, so I hope to do even more of that by doing these live streams, by trying to uh, reach new audiences and trying to at least bring a, a little bit of positivity and uh, s- help people see some of the lights at the end of this tunnel here. Uh, I really appreciate your support, guys. Back on schedule tomorrow, we will have uh, Brian McWilliams hitting you up with his weekly shot of comedy culture and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while Odie will wrap things up on Friday with Felony Friday. You don't want to miss a darn thing, my friends. Just like Steven Tyler once said, you don't want to miss a thing. I won't do that again. I'm sorry. I apologize. But uh, also stay tuned to the Facebook feed, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. I will be doing more of these live streams. I have a couple this week. Today, if you're listening uh, this morning, I'm doing one with Raylene Lightheart of Blast Off. I'm also doing one later this week with a gentleman by the name of Alexander Portelli, who's going to tell us about his experiences trying to import masks into this country. Uh, you're going to be amazed at all the roadblocks that are in the way of people just trying to get basic masks. So uh, stay tuned to all that stuff. And they will, of course, eventually be released as bonus podcasts just like this one and until next time my friends you know what i want you to do i want you to live long and live free